So tonight I want to talk some about um, wise friendship, spiritual friendship, having wise friends and also being a wise friend. Uh, Mostly using things that the Buddha said and some stories from the time of the Buddha to show how important this is in our uh, path of awakening. This was said by the Blessed One, so I have heard. With regard to external factors, I don't envision any other single factor like friendship with admirable people as doing so much for a bhikkhu in training who has not attained the goal but remains intent on the unsurpassed safety from bondage. A bhikkhu who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. I mean, that's quite a statement. I don't see any other external factor so important as friendship with the wise, friendship with the lovely. And this is a theme that runs through the suttas quite a bit that I want to expand on. And partly, obviously, I bring it up tonight because as we move from the world of intensive retreat and the depth and subtlety of our intensive practice, and it's all about to change, and we all know intensive practice isn't the whole ball of wax, but still, it can be quite delightful, quite subtle, and we can get caught in trying to think of our life in the world in terms of intensive practice, or think that all of our path really is, is intensive practice. And I fell into this mistake for some years in my early years of practice that the, the life in between, either I was coasting on the intensive retreat until, you know, the high ultimately crashed, and I hate to tell you, it will. And then I began suffering enough to go back to a retreat, you know, to get it again. And it took, I'm a little slow, a while to figure out, oh, I have to pay attention in my life. My life is also practice. But it doesn't mean noting your way, you know, through every moment of your life. I mean, sometimes we think that's what we mean. My life is my practice. And people seriously say, do you know? Like all day, every day? (laughs) No. (laughs) And there are many, many factors that we need to bring in to widen our sort of myopic sense of what the path of awakening is about. Kamala talked about the perfections of heart and mind the other night. So I want tonight to focus on this area of spiritual friendship I think it really highlights the Buddha pointing to the fact that we are not separate. We can't live, we can't practice in isolation, really. We are so affected by everyone around us, the people we spend time with, the choices we make, and what's really important is we also affect everyone around us. And so in talking and reading different things the Buddha said about the importance of the essential quality of seeking out and paying attention to who we choose to spend time with, 
doesn't mean that you know we get rid of everybody that isn't perfect or something like that. But it's it's sort of like the choices we make. If we have a choice to go hang out with people who aren't wise or to hang out with wise people, to pick the wise choice. But even more, I want to emphasize, this is what I feel so deeply myself, is how desperately this world is in need of lovely friends, wise people, spiritual friends, Kalyanamita. And I think it's part of our job to really become that for our friends, for the world, you know, not just waiting for the good friends to come and save us, but to also be part of that for others. And that's really what we are becoming, what you are becoming. And so I also want to point out that to appreciate that about yourselves. No, we're not perfect, and we still need to pay attention, you know, to what we're doing, to what arises in our minds and hearts, to how we act, but not to fall into the uh, distorted perception of yourself of having spent all this time looking at greed, hatred, and delusion arising, looking at conceit arising, and so we're really quite tuned in to how much of that keeps arising. And it's so easy to think, oh, my God, you know, three months, and I'm more deluded, I'm more filled with greed, I'm more filled with craving than ever before. I see Sakaya Ditti all over the place, and wait till you start talking tomorrow, you'll really see it all over the place, personality view, that is, yours. And uh, <laughs> how could I possibly be a wise friend to anybody? You know, it's hopeless. Don't, that's an inverted, distorted perception. Appreciate. Appreciate the qualities that have been naturally being cultivated in your wisdom and purification. As I talk, I just put it in that context. I want to give you, uh, read you a, a sutta from the Buddha. I'll tell you a story, really, about the importance of wise friends in our life and in our spiritual practice. This is a, a sutta where a young monk named Magia uh, was coming back from alms round one day, and he saw this beautiful kind of mangrove grove by the river, and he thought, what a charming spot. This would be a perfect spot to go and meditate. Well, the way he put it is, to exert myself in meditation. So let me go ask the Blessed One if I may do that. So he goes to the Buddha, describes how he saw this beautiful spot, and he said, it occurred to me, you know, how charming, and this is the perfect place, so please, if the Blessed One gives me permission, I would like to go and exert myself in meditation in the mango grove. And the Buddha says, uh, you know, it would be better to stay here until there's another monk to go with you. Better not to go alone. And Magia asks him a second time, the same answer. A third time, he says, basically, he says, Lord, you, the Blessed One, you have nothing further to do, nothing further to add to what has been done, you know. But I have something further to do, so please give me permission to go and exert myself in meditation in the mango grove. So finally, the Buddha says, well, if you talk about exertion, you know, and if you talk about things to do, what can I say? Go. So he goes, and he's sitting, and he says, for the most part, he was assailed by three kinds of unskillful thoughts, sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of doing harm. 
And he thought, the thought occurred to him, how amazing, how awesome. Even though I came here through faith, still I'm overpowered by these three kinds of unskillful thoughts. So, I mean, it's really very human, isn't it? That's what I like about many of these stories. It, It quite humanizes it. And so he got up, you know, emerged from his seclusion, went back to the Buddha and said, you know, how amazing. I went with all this sincere intention and I was overwhelmed by thoughts of lust, thoughts of ill will, thoughts of cruelty. And the Buddha says, Magia, in one whose mind still lacks maturity for liberation, five qualities can bring it to maturity. Which five? Now, the first of these is the essential one. This is the case where a bhikkhu has admirable people as friends, as companions, as colleagues. So in one whose mind is still lacking maturity of liberation, the first quality that brings it to maturity is having admirable or wholesome friends as colleagues, as companions. And then I'm skipping But he says, when one has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, it is to be expected that the other four qualities will be developed. And I'll just mention them briefly. The salient point here being that the having and the spending time with other wholesome friends would naturally, one would expect it to bring out these skillful qualities in us. And these qualities are... Um, to be virtuous, to, to dwell with, you know, wholesome virtue. Um, the second one is that it is expected that we'll be get to hear at will, easily and without difficulty, talk that is truly conducive to the opening of awareness. That is, talk on having few wants, on contentment, on seclusion, on non-entanglement, on arousing persistence, on virtue, on concentration, on discernment, on freedom. See, there's quite a few things one can talk about (laughs) other than the trivialities. It's not like there's nothing else to talk about but who's going to star in the movie, you know? There's a lot, but we just have to find other people who are interested in these same things. And sometimes we can be that person who starts the conversation. Okay, that's the second factor, of the, that's the third of the five. Also, when a bhikkhu has admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues, the other quality that is expected to be developed is that the persistence will be aroused for abandoning unskillful qualities and for taking on skillful qualities. See, it's really this sense that, you know, we, we're contagious, when we're with someone who's really um, has a lot of skillful qualities, who manifests compassion, who manifests caring, who manifests non-greed, it's like that it inspires those qualities in us. It reminds us of them. And the last he mentions is that when a monk has admirable people as friends, it is to be expected that he will become discerning. In other words, become endowed with a discernment of impermanence of arising and passing away. And he, in all the different suttas that I've read, which is by no means all of them, where he's talking about 
wise friendship in one who's on the path of awakening. It's not only just about it's nice, it's good for us. It's always taking all the way to freedom. You know, it always starts with friendship and ends up in one form or the other with discerning wisdom, with freedom. So it's really a powerful thing. It's not just about how to have a nice life, you know. It's really about what's onward leading in our life to the path of awakening. And then he goes on and uh, just briefly talks about ways that uh, a person who's established with friends and with these five qualities then cultivates different forms of things he did to develop, and it's really meditation, contemplation of the unattractive to abandon lust, goodwill to abandon ill will, that's basically metta, mindfulness of in and out breathing to cut off distractive thought, and the perception of impermanence, which uproots the conceit, the mana of I am. So just in this short sutta, he moves from, you know, don't think you can just go off and do it alone, you know, but find some wise friends to support you, and it goes all the way to liberation. What really um, inspired me to talk about this, I first talked about it a few weeks ago at the Forest Refuge, was more the sense of the urgency for this world, you know, for us to really go out and share with the world who we are, who you are, the discerning wisdom, the skillful virtue, the hearts of metta and generosity, the deep faith and confidence that these are ways of being in life, not perfectly, not 100%, but really having seen the power of metta, of generosity, of wisdom, you know, so that we don't have to just automatically fall back into the train of the, the common day-to-day way of thinking. What, what motivated me to um, talk about it was, I, was lis- I often listen to NPR, you know, in the morning. And in the, the space of a week, I heard interviews with the authors of two different books. And it's just really what made me a sense of what makes people be so different. The first was the authors of a book called The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about the, uh, the main people involved in the Enron scandal, kind of the executive directors and the high-up people in Enron. And this book was like a charting of how they did the whole kind of scam. And The Smartest Guys in the Room is basically referring to these people. They were so drunk on their own success so ambition, so ambitious, so certain of their own brilliance, you know, that basically they felt like they were the smartest guys in the room and could get away with anything, you know. And for many years, apparently, did. By changing the books and cooking the books and getting banks to support them and, and this sense of um, a real creativity, a real energy, a real brilliance, completely in the service of greed and self-interest and uh, kind of, you know, conceit of, you know, everyone else is too stupid to catch on to what we're doing. And how often in the world that kind of brilliance is really seen as intelligence that leads to power that's really worthwhile. And really, I thought, God, these guys had no clue of generosity or 
virtue of sila, you know, of morality, of kindness, of metta, of karma, you know? (laughs) I mean, really clueless. And just if they hadn't gotten caught, they would still be thinking they were the smartest guys in the room and everyone around agreeing with them, you know? And so that was one. And then a couple days later, I heard the interview with the surgeon I mentioned, I think it was last week, Hassan Baya, the, the Chechnyan surgeon who went from Moscow to work in the hospital in Chechnya for six years um, for nothing, the only surgeon in the city, and as I said, treating everybody, Russians, Chechens, civilians, military, even at the very great risk of his own life. I mean, he was attacked and everything, as I said. And so that was, an interview was actually with him. And he was just had that, that simplicity of really pure hearts that tend to say, well, what else could one do, you know? I took an oath as a surgeon. Of course I had to treat everybody, you know? <laughs> yeah, people kill, but it's really important. I'm a doctor, you know? You can't do that. And you know how it is when you're in, in the company or just hearing somebody speaking from that level of compassion, that level of uh, sila, really, in their life, that level of commitment and courage, it's incredibly inspiring. Why is it inspiring? Because it touches, it touches those qualities in ourselves. Otherwise, it wouldn't be inspiring. You know, I mean, maybe, I don't know how these Enron guys really would think, but maybe they'd hear, God, what a jerk. You know, he could have kept on making a lot of money in his plastic surgery practice in Moscow, and the study goes there. But when the qualities of compassion, of wisdom, of courageous effort, of sila, of generosity, when they're awake in us, when they're there to be touched, then it doesn't take much to touch them, to open it up, to bring it out in us. That's what's beautiful about being around, or even just reading about, hearing about, you know. We may live somewhere we don't know anybody that is really inspiring, but we have so much available to us, we don't have to know people personally. I get tons of inspiration from books, from reading articles, from hearing on the radio, all kinds of people, so-called ordinary people, you know. It doesn't have to be some famous person. Just the essential goodness of people brings that out in us. And so that's really why I thought of talking about it, and I want to share now a few different ways the Buddha talks about what a good friend is, so we can pay attention to that in others, but also to cultivate it in ourselves. Because sure, these qualities are here and deep in all of you, in all of us, and like everything, we have to keep paying attention. We have to keep making choices. We have to still feel drawn to virtue rather than greed, you know, We have to feel drawn to appreciate the discernment that comes with really knowing impermanence rather than saying, ah, it's just too painful to stay open to this dharma. I wish I could just go back to delusion. You know, some days it's like that. But to make the choice, anyway, you can't forget about it. It's too late. (laughs) But 
There's no point even trying. But to consciously make the choice not to is much more empowering. So, another way the Buddha describes what friendship with the lovely does is he says, I know of no one single thing of such power to cause the arising of good states not arisen or the waning of evil states already arisen as friendship with the lovely. In that very practical way, he has of speaking about things. And, of course, much of who he's talking to is monks, and often when he's talking about sila or morality, he's talking about the whole set of monks and nuns' rules. But it's not only in that relatively rarefied realm that he's speaking. Here's a, a lovely list I came on of seven qualities of a friend. A friend should be followed when she possesses seven factors. What seven? She gives what is difficult to give. She does what is difficult to do. Patiently endures what is difficult to endure. Reveals her own secrets, is open-hearted. Keeps one's secrets, so is trustworthy. She does not abandon one when one is in misfortune and does not despise one because of one's loss. A friend should be followed when she possesses these seven qualities. And that is the qualities of a really good friend, isn't it? Nothing esoteric, nothing that you have to be in robes to appreciate, just very much based on Kindness, friendliness, morality, and simple caring, heart-to-heart caring. That's really what the Buddha is talking about. Oh, yeah, one other place where he's talking specifically to householders now. And sometimes he would give, I'm not going to go much into this sutta, but he would give specific discourses to householders who would come and say, you know, we have no interest basically in ordaining and we want to live a happy and wholesome household life, but kind of tone it down basically. They're asking him to tone it down. <laughs> and he, he often did. So this particular one, he's talking about, um, you know, four things that lead to the welfare and happiness of a family person. And the first one, guess what? Good friendship. And then he says, what entails good friendship is finding a friend who has accomplishments in faith, virtue, morality, generosity, and wisdom. So it's these basic qualities he talks about over and over. Faith, he really means faith in Buddha Dhamma, but we could just expand it to faith in the wholesome, faith in awakening, you know faith in the potential for purification of our hearts and minds from greed and hatred and delusion. Virtue, obvious. Generosity, we've talked about a lot. And wisdom, again. And wisdom, when he talks about it, even in household ways, the the level of wisdom he talks about always is up to the point of seeing into and understanding the arising and passing away of things. So that basically... If we come to really understand 
in our own experience the truth of anicca, the truth of impermanence. And sure, that can go deeper and deeper and deeper. Don't start thinking, oh, I've got to have some state of seeing into anicca, and that's it. But just more and more seeing and understanding that truth, it will naturally continue to lead us into deeper and deeper wisdom. So these qualities of friendship are both quite natural. They also can be cultivated and developed to great depth. And that's, I really feel, a great part of our the practice that we're called to in our daily life. Of course we continue with our formal meditation practice, and we'll talk a lot about that. But this sense of really honoring our potential as a source of light in the world, as a spiritual friend in the world, and consciously seeking out others because that supports us in the same way. It takes commitment. It takes dedication. It takes resolve. You know, Because as the Buddha said, that his way of teaching, the way of his path, runs upstream you know, to the stream of common society. That was true then, and it's true now. It's not a judgment. It's just a statement of how things are. And as someone expressed to me at the Forest Refuge last month, as a friend who'd been just coming to the end of five months of retreat at that time. And she was, you know, as you all are, and two months more, in a very refined and pure state, And she just came in one day saying how she saw so deeply how important it is, our effect on one another, on who we spend time with. She said, I really see that there really is some purity in my mind stream, in my heart. And I can feel so deeply how much it's affected by the people I choose to be around. She said, you know, if I hang out with wise people, with good companions... We don't talk about they have to be arhants, just basically good people. So I really see that they call out the skillful qualities in me that maybe are dormant or you know near the surface, but they call them out by inspiration, and I call it out in them. But she said, I also notice if I tend to just out of inertia, really, choose to go hang out with unwise companions, then not only does it not encourage the wholesome, the skillful qualities in me, but it can also, I find that I start to kind of fall into their train, you know, and start not talking about really bad stuff, but we just get more careless. We get more lazy. We start following with inertia, you know, and do things that just aren't really so helpful. And again, remembering in this context, this isn't about judging. It's not to say if you go to work and the people you work with aren't so wise or aren't so good, you just say, I'm quitting. It's not that. That's the place where we have to really call on our commitment to awakening, our commitment to metta, our commitment to generosity and open-heartedness, to be the lovely friend at that point, you know, rather than just abandon it and say, well, it's easier to go with the flow, you know. And I remember when, after my first retreat years ago, a long time ago, I didn't really understand much about Buddha Dharma. I was only 19. 
but it really changed my life. And I felt just spontaneously when I came home. I just lost all interest. I was 19, remember. I lost all interest in hanging out and going to bars and things like that. And it wasn't a judgment trip. It wasn't that I thought, oh, these are the precepts and I I have to follow them to be a good Buddhist. It was nothing like that. It was just that that sense of enjoyment from that kind of activity had fallen away, and I was awake enough to be aware of that. It also meant, at times, I didn't hang out with my friends because that's what they wanted to do. So there was plenty of times of choice. Where I said, well, do I just want to sit home alone? And sometimes, yeah. And that was actually quite peaceful and fine. It was actually a very happy year, as I remember it, back in that haze of memory. Um, and sometimes not. You know, I think, oh, but I'm being stuck up or I'm being too standoffish. I'll just go out tonight. And if I paid attention, and this is, you know, the key, the reference point the Buddhist, Buddha gives me us over and over and over. There are actions to be performed and actions to be avoided. Speech to be performed and speech to be avoided. Thoughts to think and thoughts to be avoided. And what's the reference? That which increases skillful states already arisen or brings about skillful states not arisen, that's to be followed. Actions and speech that bring about an increase in unwholesome states or bring up unwholesome states that aren't increased, well, that's to be avoided. I mean, it's not rocket science. And it's not about, you know, adhering to some set of rules or pleasing someone else. It's very specifically and experientially tuned into what creates more peace and happiness and harmony in my heart and in my surroundings and what creates more suffering here and now. And it doesn't mean that the activity is intrinsically bad. If it brings up more confusion, more greed, more anger, and it's something we have a choice about, don't do it. That's all. And so I would find I'd go out with my friends and go to some bar, and halfway through, I'd be like, what am I doing here? You know, have you ever been in that situation? <laughs> what am I doing here? And, you know, it's not their fault. They're having fun, fine. Let them have fun. And that took a while to learn. I remember, actually, I was on staff here. Um, um, I forget which time I was on staff. I think it was in 78. And sometimes we staff used to get together and go out to movies. You know, it's like an hour drive to any movie from here. Uh, and I had found... We'd always go six in the car, moving the pack mentality, you know, because we didn't have many cars then, and it was a big deal. And I remember I'd go just to be with everybody, and I like movies. And I remember one night I'd found if I went out more than one night a week, I was just exhausted, and uh, I, I just couldn't do it. And then I stopped even enjoying all that. It was just so much to go to some stupid movie, you know. And I remember when I really got it that I could tune into what was true for me more than going with a pack. We were starting out in the car, and got to the end of the driveway, and I said, "Wait a minute, stop! Let me out!" You know, I finally realized it before I got all the way to Northampton and said, "What am I doing here?" I, oh yeah, I don't need to do this, and it was so freeing 
because nobody cared, you know, didn't hurt anybody's feelings. And it was a really positive commitment to what's really true, you know, what's, what's liberating, what's bringing about more skillfulness in my own experience, more wholesomeness. So it can just be little things, you know. And in little ways, we're all models for each other, but we have to commit ourselves, really. And it over and over and over. And I know sometimes it's a hard teaching saying that who we choose to spend time with has such an effect on us, just as we have such an effect on others. We can so easily fall into this better, worse judgment, you know, good and bad kind of thing about people. And it isn't that. You know, we all know in ourselves there's times when we're the deluded, aversive person and we really need a lovely friend to remind us there's another way. There's times when we might be the lovely friend and someone else is deluded and aversive. But to notice the fact that we are completely not separate and we do have a huge effect on one another. This is a little poem from the Buddha, one of his very... Even if you do no harm, but seek out one who does, you're suspected of harm. Your bad reputation grows. The sort of person you make a friend, the sort you seek out, that's the sort you yourself become. For your living together is like that. And this is the prayer like The one associated with, the one who associates, the one who's touched, the one who touches another, like an arrow smeared with poison, contaminates the quiver. A man who wraps rotting fish in a blade of kusa grass makes the grass smelly. So it is if you seek out fools. (laughs) But a person who wraps powdered incense in the leaf of a tree makes the leaf fragrant. So it is if you seek out the wise. And he just goes on to say, you know, seek out wise people, seek out lovely people. And just that sense of conditioning is so strong to have a healthy respect for it. I think that more than anything in these 30 years, every year my respect for the power of our habits of mind and heart grows. You know, that's not to be discouraging. It's just to have a healthy respect and and pay attention to all the different ways of training the Buddha offers and use them all in our life. So a couple of incidents where the Buddha gave some other examples of how to qualities to cultivate to be a wise friend. There's one story which I like. It's another one of these making it very human. Where it's called the quarrel at Kosambi. So at Kosambi, there was a large group of monks living together. And what started out as a very minor disagreement between two of the monks grew into this huge quarrel that caused a schism in the Sangha, and then the whole lay community began to get involved and take sides. And I find it amusing just because human nature amuses me often, but because it's also so 
Oh, you can just hear any of us. Well, maybe I'm projecting. But you could hear any, any you know, of us just kind of getting this petty, you know. And it was two bhikkhus, one of whom was an expert in the discipline, in the vinaya, and the other one was a teacher of the discourses. So these weren't like slacker bhikkhus. These were serious, practicing monks. And so what started the quarrel was the teacher of the discourses committed some very minor offense, you know, of all the rules, uh, some minor offense. And then the first one, the, the scholar of the discipline said, oh, you know, that was an offense you committed. And the second one said, oh, I didn't know it. Okay, I'll, I'll go and, you know, ask, say the confession, ask forgiveness right away. So no problem. But then the, the scholar of the discipline said to him, oh, well, if you didn't know it was an offense then it's okay, it's not an offense. So then the second one who created the defense went, offense went away thinking, okay, well then I didn't commit an offense. <laughs> so it's very complicated, right? But basically it's this very nitpicky thing. But then the disciplined guy went, he committed an offense and he doesn't even know when he committed an offense. You know, He's a no good monk. And the second monk said, no, he told me it was an offense and now he's saying it is, he's a liar. So you see, it started from such a little thing and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, until it was this huge argument, fight going on, and the lay people were getting involved, and they were saying, well, we can't respect these bhikkhus if they fight and squabble like this. So finally, the Buddha came to try and, you know, talk to these guys. <laughs> and he says, at some point, and I'm just picking the, the pithy parts, He says, Bhikkhus, when you take to quarreling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, on that occasion you do not maintain acts of loving kindness by (laughs) body, speech, and mind. (laughs) Misguided men, what can you possibly know? What can you see that you take to quarreling and brawling and stabbing each other with verbal daggers? He's basically, what are you thinking of? What do you see that takes you to that? You can neither convince each other nor be convinced by others. You can neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by others. Misguided men, this will lead to your harm and suffering for a long time. And... Then he gave them a list of six memorable qualities. And I'll go into that in a minute, but I just want to say the way this ended is he he gives this whole list and this whole discourse. But it also says in in some of the other discourses that at first these bhikkhus heard him out and then they said, you know, blessed one, don't bother yourself with this. (laughs) Basically, you go off and we'll deal with it. You know, I think they didn't want to hear him. Can you imagine? Being, we're so into our views and opinions, and the Buddha comes and says, this is the way to live in concord. You say, blessed one, don't bother yourself. <laughs> and it said that, you know, he went off and said, these, these, it's impossible to make them see. These misguided men seem obsessed, you know. <laughs> and he went away and came back another time. So just so you know, it wasn't so always easy then. And even they had a Buddha to talk to. So it's no wonder we get obsessed and caught up. We do. So six memorable qualities that create love and respect and conduce to helpfulness, to non-dispute, to concord, and to unity. 
They're nothing we haven't heard a million times, but this is the sticks the Buddha picked, so I want to emphasize it again. That one maintains bodily acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards one's companions in the holy life. Then maintains meant verbal acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private, towards one's companions, and maintains mental acts of loving kindness, both in public and in private. I mean, already that's huge, right? But it's uh, not that we're going to be perfect in that, but to really take it as a practice, that this is really a way one can aspire to live. Then the next one is basically generosity. That one uses things in common with one's companions in the holy life, with friends, without reserving, you know, things for me. One shares any kind of a gain that comes to one that's in accord with the Dhamma. So in other words, just sharing freely with our friends, with our companions, with our family, with whoever in the holy life. The next one is basically um, sila. He, he says, and this is speaking to bhikkhus, but it also applies to us. He dwells both in public and in private, possessing in common with the companions in the life, virtues that are unbroken, unblemished, commended by the wise, not misunderstood. In other words, a commitment to sila, to non-harming. And the sixth is dwelling both in public and in private, possessing in common with one's companions in the holy life, view that is emancipating, that leads one to practice in accordance with that view, that one will continue to practice to the destruction of suffering. This is a memorable quality. And, of course, he goes on to say, of these six qualities, the most comprehensive, the most conclusive, is, of course, this quality of wise view, right view. So even here, where he's talking about the qualities that allow us to live together in unity, in concord, in uh, helpfulness, non-dispute, it comes to right view. Again, the view of the understanding of arising and passing away, of that things are impermanent. But, and this is the thing I love the most about this sutta, he goes on to say, how does this view that is noble and emancipating lead the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering? Now, so imagine he's talking to some people that are totally locked in recrimination and anger with each other about their conflicting views. They are sure they're right. They can't hear each other. They don't want to hear each other. And this is how the Buddha says we use wise view in this case. And this is so applicable to any of us in our life. Here, one uses this view, one goes to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut or to the little corner of your room or if you're at work and really busy, go to the toilet. I mean, just go somewhere for a few minutes and be quiet and consider thus. Is there some obsession unabandoned in myself that might so obsess my mind that I cannot know or see things as they actually are? 
Now, is this what we tend to do when we're really locked in anger and we're sure the other person's wrong and we're right? Do we go off and sit and say, is there an obsession, unabandoned in my mind, that's preventing me from seeing things as they actually are? And this is powerful stuff, and this is possible for us. Not so much telling the other person to go look and see what obsession is keeping their mind from seeing things as they actually are. That's more what we'd like to do. But really go and look and see. And then, of course, he gives a list of some of the things that obsess our mind. If, if one is obsessed by sensual lust, just wanting, the mind is obsessed. We're obsessed by sloth and torpor. The mind is obsessed. By restlessness and remorse, by doubt. If one is absorbed in speculation about this world, the mind is obsessed. If one is absorbed in speculation about the other world, the mind is obsessed. And this encompasses quite a bit. If one takes to quarreling and brawling and is deep in disputes, stabbing others with verbal daggers, then his mind is obsessed. He didn't really give the option, maybe you're right, and the other guy's obsessed. If we're that locked in. And so simply having a commitment to this wise view, we take ourselves off and go look. And this is so inspiring to me. It's not about saying we expect to be perfect. It's about that commitment, really, to practice, to honesty, to sincerity of intention, to really looking, you know, what's present and what's absent in the mind stream, in the heart right now. Is it possible that there's some obsession present that's really preventing my seeing and understanding clearly in this situation? And what's amazing is it can be so hard to notice, and, well, you all know that, and then we notice it. It's like, oh, my God, the elephant in the room. Oh, yeah. Total self-righteousness. It's possible that might slightly skew my perception in the present moment experience, for example. It's a really powerful practice. And our mind does get obsessed so easily. So I want to read a couple of lines from Banke, who was a a Zen uh, master in Japan in the 1600s. How easily our mind gets obsessed in thought, in emotions, and he cuts right through. He says, your self-partiality is at the root of all your illusions. There aren't any illusions when you don't have this preference for yourself. If the men sitting next to you start quarreling, it may be quite easy for you to tell which of the disputants is in the right and which is in the wrong because you're not involved yourself. You're a bystander, so you can keep a cool head. But what if you do have a part in it? Then you take your own side and oppose the other fellow. As you fight with each other, you transform your Buddha minds into fighting spirits. This is when our mind and heart gets obsessed. And then here's another more specific example. He's talking to a monk who comes to Bankai and says, I was born with a short temper. It's always flaring up. And my master at home has told me time and again to get rid of it, but it hasn't done any good. 
I'm born with a bad temper. No matter how hard I try, I can't get rid of it, so I've come to you hoping that you'll cure me, you know, with your teaching, and I can go back. So Bankai, he's very just straightforward. He says, that's an interesting inheritance you have. Is your temper here now? Bring it out, and I'll cure it for you. And the monk says, well, I'm not angry now. My temper comes out unexpectedly when something provokes me. Bankai says, well, then you weren't born with it, were you? You create it yourself when some pretext or other appears to happen. You know? You work yourself into a temper because of your partiality for yourself, opposing others in order to have your own way. And he says each person receives Buddha mind from his parents when he's born. His illusion is something he produces all alone by being partial to himself. Now, this is moment to moment, right? It's foolish to think that it's inherent, and that's what's freeing. Not to think that our delusion, our illusion is inherent, you know, and we're stuck with it. The fact that it's being produced every moment, or many moments, that means there's also moments it's not being produced. And he says, when you don't produce your temper, where is it? All illusions are the same. As long as you don't produce them, they don't exist. That's what everyone fails to realize. You create your outbursts of temper, now he's talking to this monk again, when the organs of your six senses, vision, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and faculty of mind, are stimulated by some external condition and incite you to oppose other people because you desire to assert your own preciously held ideas. When you have no attachment to self, there are no illusions. So not that we're living in the perfection of this and not to grasp that as another idea of how it should be, but as a pointer, you know, are a direction of practice just to hold the possibility, you know, when we're in conflict internally, externally, both internally and externally, to just check in, to look really honestly, to trust our sincerity of attention and see, you know, is the heart obsessed? Is the mind obsessed? Is there a partiality to myself creating illusion right now? It's not something we can think through, of course, but that we can tune into. Another statement from Bankai, don't set yourself into confrontation with things. So it's not even argument with another person, but that sense of, you know, can I just be so present with things as they are in this moment without moving toing or froing? Then, without that illusion, that partiality to self, perhaps one can see more clearly, perceive more clearly, be more present, what's really going on. Someone shared with me this saying from Shanti Deva that she was using as a kind of a daily daily practice for her on retreat. Since all fear, stress, and harm are consequences of the commitment to the me fantasy, can I afford to entertain this fantasy even for a moment? It's not a should. 
as a sense of really seeing, since all fear, stress, and harm are consequences of the commitment to the me fantasy in any moment, can I really afford to entertain this fantasy even for a moment? Just explore that in these days here, not as a judgment, but when I'm really entertaining the me fantasy, is that conducive to wholesome states arising or is it conducive to suffering states arising? And if you find it's conducive to wholesome states arising, then go for it by all means. If you find it's conducive to suffering states arising, Don't get into judging it, but when we see that clearly, that's when the heart and mind begins to naturally let go. Because we're really not stupid. We don't really want to suffer. We just need to really commit to have that that sincerity of intention, you know, that resolution to explore, to use that guideline of the Buddhas, you know, whatever thought, speech, or actions lead to more suffering, unwholesome states arising, these are to be avoided. If the thought, speech, action leads to more wholesome states, you know, non-greed, metta, compassion, generosity, sila, discerning wisdom, then by all means, that's to be followed. Simply a guideline. Not to judge ourselves about perfection, not to try and you know get upset every time we fall short. But remember the Dalai Lama saying, I think I read one night, that when we look at whether to have faith in our practice, to trust the sincerity of our intention. And that sincerity of intention, we can renew that, commit to that in each new moment. Okay, so last time I made the choice that increased my suffering. Seeing that with the mind and heart not obsessed, not partial to myself, it's like, oh yeah, that really didn't work, did it? It allows for something new to emerge, for a movement towards wholesomeness, towards happiness, towards compassion, towards metta in the next moment. And that's always a possibility. We're not locked in. The habits are strong, yes, but mindfulness, generosity, sila, Wisdom, it's much stronger, much stronger. A teacher of mine used to say, one spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. And you'll see that, you know, you struggle, 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 and you have that one good sitting or just one moment, you know, this flash of insight. Have you noticed how that keeps you going for days, for weeks? It's a good thing that a spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. It's so much stronger than conditioning that it doesn't take as many moments, thank the good Lord, but it takes recommitting over and over to free our hearts and minds from obsessive suffering. Good, so there's just time for this one other story. On a more positive note, it's said in some of the um, commentaries for the Vinaya that actually when the Buddha left those recalcitrant monks in Kosambi saying these poor guys are obsessed, you know, I'm out of here. He wandered off and he came to, um, where is it? Mm. Well, it doesn't really matter to you, but he came to the park of the Gosinga Sala tree wood, 
where three very well-known monks, and I think these guys were arhats at this time, were living together, Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kimbala. And they were living together in great harmony, in great peace. So it's like, you know, the, uh, the other side, like the photographic negative of the story before. And he comes and he says to them, oh, you're, you're living together, living in concord with mutual appreciation, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. How do you do it, Anuruddha? I'll just give a few things they say. And he says, I think it's a gain for me, it's a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. So he maintains bodily, verbal, and mental acts of loving kindness towards them openly and privately. He says, I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? And so then I set aside what I wish to do, and I do what these ones wish to do. And then all the other two say the same thing. And then there's this lovely little paragraph where they're describing their daily rounds together, of living together. I was reading this at the refuge, and a friend who was a monk, he just disrobed, has been there for some time, but had also been in Asia as a monk. He loved it because it just brought back the flavor, actually, of what life in a monastery in Asia is like. So he says, how do you abide? He said, we abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. But Anuruddha, how do you abide thus? Venerable sir, as to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. Whichever of us returns last, eats any food left over if he wishes, Otherwise, he throws it away where there is no greenery or drops it into water where there is no life. He puts away the seats in the water for drinking and for washing. He puts away the refuse bucket after washing it, and he sweeps out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing, or the latrine are low or empty takes care of them. If they're too heavy for him, he calls someone else by a signal of the hand, and they move it by joining hands. But because of this, we do not break out into speech. But every five days, we sit together all night discussing the Dhamma. That is how we abide, diligent, ardent, and resolute. It's lovely, huh? And then a whole bunch of other things. But right at the end, and this is the point I want to close with, how even these three practicing like this in purity and not having much to do with other people, the Buddha goes on and draws from it how this is a great benefit to all in the world. And I'll I'll end with his words, but I just want to say I'm reading it because really take it in that our practice and our commitment to live an awakened life, our commitment to really keep on trucking on this path is so important. Whatever particular way we end up interacting and living in the world, whether we go to be hermits, where we're very socially active, whether we're having a family life, it's not so much the outer form, it's the inner qualities of wholesomeness, of goodness, of commitment to awakening that you bring. And it's of great benefit for all you come in contact with in the world. So the Buddha, it's very long, and I'll just read the end of it, but he starts by saying, 
If the clan from which those three clansmen went forth from home into homelessness should remember them with confident heart, that would lead to the welfare and happiness of that clan for a long time. And he goes through getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he ends with, you know, if the world with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes and its people, should remember those three clansmen with confident heart. That would lead to the welfare and happiness of the world for a long time. See how those three clansmen are practicing for the welfare and happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. And really, that's what we're practicing for, for the welfare and happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. So may it be so in all of your lives. Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by Carol Wilson at Insight Meditation Society on December 7, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.